and welcome to the Bedroom Studios podcast, the podcast where we talk about what goes on behind the scenes in a musician's world and bridge the industry gap by bringing their stories, expertise, and advice to early career artists. Subscribe to join us for a fun chat about life as a creative person, tips and tricks for pursuing an artistic career, navigating the music industry, and more. I am your host, Emma, and today I will be interviewing Emily Green. Emily Green is a composer born in Ottawa and is currently studying at the Manhattan School of Music. I personally know Emily from our studies at the University of Toronto, where she received her Bachelor's of Music in Composition and Voice. Emily has had several pieces performed and commissioned by choirs such as the Ottawa Regional Youth Choir, the Capitol Chamber Choir, the Elmer Eisler Singers, the University of Toronto's Concremus Chamber Choir, and the Myriad Women's Choir. I had such an amazing conversation with Emily and I definitely learned so much. We spoke about her journey as both a singer and a composer, her experience pursuing composition at the post-secondary level, and also her tips for networking and building a career as a composer. If you are someone who is looking to pursue composition at a more serious level, this episode is definitely for you. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bedroom Studios podcast with our guest, Emily Green. So hello. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. So just to jump right into it, what events led you to where you are now and what led you to study music and want to pursue it as a career? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I actually started out as a piano student when I was really young. Um, My grandparents who lived in Nova Scotia at the time had this like old, old piano. And whenever we would go to visit them my mom noticed that I was always really interested in the piano so she put me in piano lessons and I pretty much did that until um I was sort of like in my pre-teen years um but I always really loved to sing too and especially loved the idea of singing in a choir but the thing was that we lived um way out in this suburb of Ottawa called Stittsville and there weren't any really good choirs that were nearby but then Eventually, I went to um, middle school, sort of closer to downtown. So my mom figured that now was a good time to put me in a choir since it was easy for me to get there from school, after school. And I just fell in love with singing in choirs. And towards like partway through high school, I decided that um, I I did like playing the piano, but I kind of knew that I was never going to be like super, super good at it. I was okay because I practiced, but I don't really have... I'm not very coordinated with my hands and my fingers. So um, I decided to kind of switch gears and focus more on singing. And I actually started taking voice lessons in grade 11, which is pretty late um, for someone who's a voice major. But um, in high school, I also had a choir director who was really supportive of my interest in composition. And um, I was very lucky that he even agreed to have the choir sing some of my works. And I... I think that's a huge part of the reason why I decided to apply to U of T for composition. Um, And I think having that in my portfolio already from high school was probably part of a big reason why I was accepted into the composition program too. So I have my high school uh, choir director, Jamie Loback, and, you know, so many other people who were really supportive of my interesting composition to thank for for that. Um, Yeah. And then I just am graduating this year from, my undergrad and I'm going to be starting at the Manhattan School of Music next year for a master's. Yay, in congratulations. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah, I'm super excited. 
That's so interesting though, because I I always assumed that you had just been singing and taking voice lessons all your life, just because I've heard you sing before and you're really really good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I mean, I guess I have been singing all my life. I think that would be a, a pretty fair mm. thing to say. But yeah, I didn't actually start taking. And I think also, I mean, I learned a lot from from being in choirs too. But I didn't actually start taking like one on one private voice lessons till partway through high school. Mm-hmm. That was the same with me for flute. I didn't start taking lessons until much later. I also found it interesting because, like, how were you exposed to choirs when you were younger? Because um, I guess like it depends on if you're I don't know if you're like if your parents really like choirs or something but I know for me like I just that was not something I was exposed to as a kid it's not something that you would hear on the radio Um, yeah totally and like uh, you know what I actually personally don't don't even remember exactly what it was that exposed me to that I know that my mom did sing in choirs growing up but she certainly never like really talked about it a ton or anything like that but it must have been that I just saw a choir somewhere once I would Mm -hmm. I would probably actually have to ask my parents about that they would probably remember better than me but yeah it, it must have been that I saw a choir live at some point somewhere and just was really interested in in doing that nice and so it was like it was more of like you fell in love with choir first and then composing for choir is sort of like a natural progression of that right yeah yeah totally um I kind of had sort of always been like vaguely interested in composition but I think it never really sort of occurred to me as like something that I could do especially not something that I could you know study and and do like in university until much later yeah now that you've been doing it for a really long time is there a process that or an approach that you use when you're composing a piece or does it change I think it does change and actually I mean funny enough to me it's it still I feel like doesn't feel like I've been doing it for a really long time even though I guess maybe mm-hmm. I have by now but I didn't really start seriously composing again until like partway through high school, which is a lot later than a lot of other people that I know. But I think my process changes a lot depending on whether I'm working with text or not. I write a lot for Mm -hmm. the voice. And if I am using text, I think that like sort of influences my process a lot. And I sort of use that as a starting point and, and sort of go from there. And then if I'm not using text, then it's a totally different process. But I think I'm still sort of figuring out what works best for me and and trying to come up with a a really sort of um, reliable and consistent writing process and even like a writing schedule, trying to just be more consistent about sitting down to write as often Mm -hmm. as possible. So I think that's definitely still sort of like a journey that I'm on. Yeah, no, I can can relate. (laughs) I, I always like think of this. I don't think it's an actual quote, but it's like the nice thing about being uh, about making music is the music, but the not so nice thing is the fact that you actually have to make it. Yeah, yeah, I really love this is like and I feel like if you ask pretty much any composer, they'll have like they'll say something similar. But um, I mean, some people are lucky and they just have a really, really good relationship with the actual process of writing. But I know a lot Mm -hmm. of composers and definitely myself were like, I really love having written something and I don't at this point I feel like I don't always love like actually sitting down to to write but the just like it's so worth it to have a finished piece and like to hear it performed but yeah I definitely prefer having written something over like writing (laughs) yeah (laughs) I find that I can start things but I have so much trouble finishing them do you do you also experience that totally in like 
every aspect of my life to not just <laughs> not just music I like I get so excited about things and then I start all these projects and it's I feel like I want to say like 80% like it's lucky the lucky 20% of them that I finish but um obviously with composition I, I try to be a lot better about that and it's you know finishing things that I start especially because so much of the work goes into actually just starting something so kind of like a I find it you know I, I try to be really intentional about um what projects I start and making sure that I'm really willing to to finish them when it comes to composition but I also feel like a lot of composers sort of go through these like different phases at different parts of the writing process if that makes sense like for me when I start something out I'm obviously you know really excited about it and I have all these ideas and it's about sort of narrowing down those ideas to sort of really get started and then usually about like 20% of the way through the project I'm like okay feeling really good about this and then at least for me and a lot of other composers that I've talked to like at about the halfway point you just get this feeling of like what if this is actually the worst piece in the world? Yeah. <laughs> and then and then you keep going. And then like when it's almost done, you start to feel better about it again. And then it's finished. And then sometimes you get a second wave of like, wait, what if this is actually really bad? And then, you know, eventually you sort of get over it. But it's a very sort of up and down process, I find. Yeah. And so like in those moments where you're in that everything is garbage phase. Um, is <laughs> really, there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What helps you to push through that period in the writing process? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like one part of it is just sort of like understanding now that that's just sort of like how my process goes and, you know, that I'll get over it and that everything's going to be okay, even if it doesn't feel like it at the moment. And then also just, I think, sort of what we were talking about before of like, I have started this project and I feel like sometimes just like, the will to finish it regardless of how I feel about it sort of helps me you know mm -hmm. just just soldier on and finish the piece and then also I mean not as glamorous but I have composition lessons every week and I have to bring something into them so yeah <laughs> nice yeah it's definitely that like the pressure of school well yeah. uh, that'll do it <laughs> Um, this is more of a personal question, like that I'm just really curious about in general. But um, do you, when you write, do you um like think very consciously about music theory, and do you like I want this kind of feeling, and so I'm gonna use this chord to create this feeling, or do you sort of just like just write how you feel, or do you? go back to it later with a more theoretical lens like I'm, I'm just wondering how do you approach yeah so I think it's it's definitely a little bit of both depending on the the situation um I definitely do rely a lot on my knowledge of music theory but less to like sort of you know like follow the rules and more just to sort of like create the effects that I want like I I I sort of don't really buy it when people say that you don't need to know music theory to to write music I mean I, I think you still can, but it certainly makes it a lot easier when you do know music theory so that you know, like, this is the sound in my head that I want, and I know how to achieve that on paper. So definitely, I think, I think that helps me a lot in terms of just like the efficiency of, of like knowing what I want. And also, I think having like an awareness of the repertoire is super important, even if you're, you know, obviously, you're not going to write like Beethoven wrote or like Mozart wrote or like Debussy wrote. 
um, or maybe you are, and that's great too, but like just sort of having an awareness of those traditions and which traditions you sort of want to um, emulate in your own music and which ones you don't, and just like how your own music fits into, you know, the greater world, um, mm -hmm. I think is important. But often I do sort of just, you know, try some things out and do what's cool. And I think that's also a big part of, of writing. At Composition Forum one time, someone was saying, I, I forget who it is, I wish I remembered so that I could give them credit for their awesome idea, but um, they were saying that they had heard that there's the, what was it, there's the child and, you know, the academic, essentially, or the, yeah, we'll say the child and the academic, and they're both sort of making decisions about um, about the piece, and the child is the sort of, you know, oh, just like what sounds cool, or what, like my my gut instinct, and then the academic is the one who says like oh well like what if like like make sure the form is good and make sure the structure and everything like all the you know sort of more music theory related and sort of like stuff that involves sort of more left brain thinking but then he said the important the most important thing that I sort of realized was that you also need to have a third role which is the contractor and the contractor decides whether the child or the academic um, gets to decide about any given thing and I that was really a cool <laughs> thing for me to hear and that was really eye-opening of like oh yeah like I guess it is important to sort of have a process of deciding like okay am I going to approach this from um, sort of like an analytical standpoint or just from like a gut instinct standpoint yeah that's really interesting huh. mm -hmm. yeah that's cool I guess it's like that's I feel like being in a very academic environment in university it can really sway I don't I don't know if you've experienced this but I felt like for me it was I, I felt like because maybe like you know there was an area of music theory that I wasn't as strong in or I didn't know how to sort of bridge the the knowledge of like music theory courses and apply them to composition and so I felt like like I was doing something wrong just inherently because I didn't have as that analytical theoretical approach to composition wasn't as developed but it's like it's interesting hearing you talk about how you know both perspectives can be valid yeah and I think they're they're both super important mm -hmm. because I mean like it's you know it's if you don't have that sort of like gut instinct you you know you have to have something to say um yeah. and I think that really comes from like the inner child gut instinct part of you and you know if if you're only using the sort of like analytical part of yourself you're just I don't know, doing a theory exercise, right? Yeah, for sure. Did you find that um, your composition teachers were uh, supportive of, you know, trying different things and expressing your inner voice or did they want you to sort of stick to one type of style? Hmm. I mean, I've had, so I've had, let's see, one, I've had four composition teachers over my time at U of T and they were all really different and um, you know it depends on the teacher some of them are sort of really open to whatever kind of style you want to write in and some of them um, have their own kind of ideas about the, you know the, how you should write um, and I think both of those approaches are are valid it just sort of on what you want out of your lessons do you really want to sort of like follow in someone's footsteps and emulate their style or do you want someone who will sort of let you do what you want but sort of just help you try and do that in the best way possible and I find that I sort of maybe more lean towards I, I prefer to have a teacher who 
helps me do what I want to, what I already know I want to do in the best way possible, instead of sort of like telling me what they, what they think I should do. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think it, you really sort of have to like develop a relationship with your teacher too. And I think with composition, it's, it's a bit different from like instrument lessons or voice lessons because in, you know, instrumental technique or vocal technique to a certain extent, obviously, um, this is not like 100%, but for the most part, like there is a correct technique and an incorrect technique for Mm -hmm. like how to play the flute, for example. Um, And, you know, your teacher's job is to sort of help you get, get better, you know, for, for lack of a better way to, to put it. But then for composition, there's not, it's, it's, you know, not always as clear cut and like there are good compositional techniques and you know maybe not so effective compositional techniques but it's a much more sort of broad um thing so you sort of have to communicate with your teacher about what you want to get out of your lessons and what parts of your writing are like you're saying like oh this is what I want to do and you know I'm sort of not willing to budge on this versus like what kinds of things you're more looking for feedback about and I you know one of my teachers last year Iman Habibi would even say like anything I tell you like you're allowed to say you're allowed to not do it Mm. um which obviously you would you wouldn't really hear that from like a flute lesson or voice lesson yeah (laughs) Um, but composition lessons are are kind of different that way because you know he he was he said like it's possible that I just don't understand what you're trying to do and if you feel that way then you know why wouldn't you just keep doing what you want to do and he told a story about you know, one of his own teachers, I forget who, um, who he would, you would bring your notation software into his lesson. And then he would change it, like he would tell you what he wanted you to do. And then he would change, actually change it in the notation software for him. And the point of his story was like, and like, do you dare bring back the old version at the next lesson? Like, obviously not, right. And then he said that he sort of felt that was, I guess, suffocating and he wanted to have a much freer approach to his lesson so yeah it really depends on the mm. teacher I think yeah and it's I guess it's nice that you've had a lot of different teachers with different styles throughout the past years and you know you it kind of forms you into uh like taking just the best parts of what you like from each teacher yeah totally I think that's like the best part and even from teachers you know like I've, I've had some teachers who I enjoyed my time with a little bit less but they still you know taught me some valuable things and there were still lots of sort of positive things that I was able to take to take from that so yeah Mm -hmm. and um I wanted to ask you some questions about I guess like beginning your career as a musician as a composer in terms of like so summer festivals um a little bit of both actually some summer festivals I've just you know I've heard that they're good and I applied for them and you know, pretty standard process. And then others, usually it's like a teacher who says, hey, either they, um, I did this festival when I was a student and I think it's really great and you should apply and I'll write you a recommendation letter. Or it's teachers who say, hey, like I have a part in running this festival. A lot of the time they're like affiliated with different summer festivals Mm -hmm. and they'll say, um, you know, it would be really great if you applied. And, you know, often they're looking for more applicants. So they'll reach out to students that they know who they think would be a good fit so a little bit of both but then in terms of like the commissions that I've done for choirs I will say that it it's all connections like I feel like even me when I was younger I had this sort of idea that like eventually if I 
if I was successful, then there would just be people sort of reaching out to me from nowhere and asking me to, you know, do stuff for them. And who knows, maybe that's still something that happens. But I found that much more frequently, it really, really has to do with the connections that you have. Like most, I think all but one of the commissions that I have ever done have been for choirs that I personally have sung in before. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, yeah, connections are super, super important. And even like, you know, the, the most recent summer festival that I did last summer called Atlantic Music Festival, it was, first of all, you know, these festivals, unfortunately, are, are not the most accessible in that they're, they're pretty expensive. Thankfully, I was um, able to get some funding from U of T to go. Um, but when I talked to, you know, my teacher and other people who had been to this festival, they all told me, no, it's, it's worth it because you're paying for meeting all these important people. And sure enough, one of the people that I met at that festival is going to be my composition teacher next year at MSM. And I'm sure that's that that so probably, you know, helped me get in. And, uh, you know, they, when someone sees your application and they recognize your name, that's huge. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, I guess, fortunately and unfortunately, it really is all about those connections. And, you know, obviously not everyone is, is fortunate enough to be able to go to these summer festivals and to make these connections for, for one reason or another. But if you can, I think that's, that's a really big part of having success as a composer. That, mm -hmm. and I think promoting your own work, like social media, which I'm terrible at, um, but I'm trying my best to be better at it. <laughs> yeah, I find it so hard to be super active on social media when I'm also trying to be creative. Mm -hmm. It takes up so much space in my brain. And yeah. like, I was recording a lot of stuff this, these past two weeks and I was like kept on in the back of my mind. I'm, I kept on being like, oh, like I should take a video or, um, like, you know, film some stuff so I can use it for quote unquote content later. But it, I just, I couldn't do it because if I, if I were to start filming stuff and filming the process, it just would take, for me, it just takes away from the experience of actually being in the moment. And I'm just like, I kind of want to just focus on what I'm doing now, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm totally on the same page as you um, with that too. And like, also, I feel like for me, I can be really, um, I guess, like perfectionistic and like, you know, there's, there's always going to be some works that I'm more proud of than others or for, you know, for you and actually for me too, there's always going to be some performances that we're more proud of than others. And mm -hmm. I think it's really hard when I sort of like realize and like tell myself, like, it's still like, I, you still have to advertise everything, even, you know, the performance that you felt like you could have done better on. It's still better to like put that on social media than to not, you know, talk about it at all. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that's really hard for me, where if, you know, if I have a performance of a piece of mine that I feel didn't go as well as I had hoped, or just even I'm not as happy with the piece itself as I had hoped. To, to still like force myself to put it out there and put it on social media can be difficult. Yeah, I, th I think the, the nice thing about um, how short form, form content is really popular now is that yeah. if something <laughs> didn't go that well, you can just take the best part and put yeah. that 15 second clip. Yeah, that's, that's for sure a, a benefit. But then it's also a drawback too, because you know, how do you choose the best five seconds of a performance or of a piece? you know and and how do you how do you try your best to choose something that's gonna like sort of represent the, the whole thing as as best as you can yeah that's so true 
so annoying mm -hmm. that we have to do this, but I think yeah. it's important part of, you know, self-promotion and stuff. I, I remember when I first started putting my stuff on social media, I was, I had a, a bit of resentment towards needing some sort of visual or video to accompany it. I was like, oh, why can't I just put my audio on because I, I work so hard on the audio and then now I have to do more work and make a video. But it's, I don't know, at the same time, I find it's now that I'm a bit more used to it. It's, it's sort of interesting to reimagine the, the sound in a visual way. That's interesting. I, I've never really thought of the idea of like, sort of having a visual way to um, sort of like accompany whatever music I'm posting. Cause I, I normally just post like, you know, whatever, if it's a choral piece, I'll just like post the video of the quiet or sometimes if I don't have good video, I'll even just post like a black screen. Um, mm. But that's a really interesting idea of like trying to find some sort of artwork or something that will go with it. I just wanted to circle back to uh, we were talking about networking and I was wondering if you just had any general advice for like obviously you've made a lot of connections through studying composition at school but other than that do you have any advice for meeting new people and you mentioned summer festivals which is a, a great one let's see yeah I mean applying to things is, is always good um, I think just like trying your best to be an active member of like whatever community that you're a part of. So like, you know, at when I was studying at U of T, I didn't just sing in the U of T choirs. I tried to find choirs like outside to sing in as well, which I know that that's sort of a big time commitment, but if you can find things that you enjoy doing as well, that would be one thing. And then also I think something that for, that was like scary for me was that um, when I was moving to Toronto from Ottawa, I was like, oh, I, I already have all these connections in Ottawa. And I'm afraid that once I move to Toronto, like those are going to sort of fade away and then I'm going to have to start over. And then now I'm sort of experiencing that same thing about moving to New York. But yeah. um, I've realized that like it's it, it usually works out OK. And I still have those connections from Ottawa and I still will have those connections that I made in Toronto and like expanding your sort of bubble is never going to be a bad thing yeah and I, I guess it's it's nice as a composer because um you can still do work for people remotely and you don't have to be in the same room as as someone like you would have to if you're um like a performer um yeah right so like people could still be like hey emily can you write me a piece and you could be across the world and be like yeah sure yeah i mean okay that that is true but actually that that makes me think of another point though which is um composers have to sort of be careful for that reason because it's kind of like I've, I've realized it's sort of like out of sight out of mind so I think one thing that is really important is that like even when you're no longer interacting with a certain person or group on like a regular basis to still keep in touch with them um because I think it's really easy for them to just like forget about you even if they don't mean to right like everyone is super busy and they have so many things on their minds so even just an email to like reach out and say hey like you know, how's it going? I saw that you were doing, you know, this and this and this, whatever you can find on social media about them. And like, just to, to keep that connection, because mm -hmm. I think it is really easy for like, as soon as you're not living in the same place anymore for, for connections to just sort of like fizzle out if you don't keep in touch. So yeah, keeping, keeping in touch, I think is a good thing. And, you know, I, I think sometimes I get nervous about doing that and feeling like this is so random that I'm just like reaching out to them and like, well, they think it's weird, but if you think of it from your perspective, like I'm never 
like when someone who I haven't seen in a while emails me, I never think like, oh, that's so random and weird. I'm always happy to hear from them, right? Yeah. So why would it be any different for, for other people? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's nice to be on the receiving end of like someone being proactive. So um, that's that's a really good point of like, no one's, no one's going to be like, ew, who's this person? It's like, yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I guess that's that's probably a person you wouldn't want to keep having the <laughs> exactly, <connection> yeah. With. <laughs> yeah. Um and when you were applying for for your masters, I assume you had to create like a portfolio and like how how did you decide what to include in that? Yeah, it was so it was a crazy process first of all, just like, you know, it was there's so much stuff to do and I'm just, I mean, I'm glad I didn't have to, like, I, I feel like we have it a little bit easier than you guys, because I did have, like, an audition with air quotes, but it was more of an interview than anything. I mm -hmm. could never, like, the idea of preparing, like, repertoire for an audition, I did that for my UT audition for voice, but it was really stressful, and I wouldn't want to do it again. But, um, yeah, preparing a portfolio comes with, I guess, its own stress, um, because I think the first I guess problem is that whatever recordings you because you're supposed to send in like performance recordings of your work to and whatever performance recordings you have of your work like that's what you have and you can't practice and make it better you can't like you know touch it up or polish it up um you just have to sort of go with whatever you have so that can be definitely stressful um and then choosing I feel like choosing the works yeah is is a big thing because a lot of schools especially for the pre-screening, they only ask for like two works. So you, you're picking two works that are usually they want them to be contrasting, like for different ensembles, for different, um, you know, different moods, different instruments. Um, and so it's like a matter of how do I give them two sort of different pieces that both still showcase sort of my voice as a composer. Um, mm -hmm. And often you're picking excerpts from those pieces too, because they don't have time to listen to everyone's, you know, eight minute, two eight minute pieces, right? Um, so I think it's kind of this, actually, it's sort of, that's really interesting. I'm just sort of realizing this now, but I guess it's kind of the same as when you're trying to put yourself out there on social media, where people yeah. are scrolling and they have you know, really short attention spans and they're not going to listen to your, you know, seven minute long clips. So you're picking, you know, the best 45 seconds, you're, trying to make it look as good as possible um, for composers specifically. And, and maybe I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I'm not the best proofreader in terms of my scores, but I think like your engraving is really important because if they yeah. open your score and it looks really polished, like even before they look at the content of it and what music is in there, just like if the score looks really polished, then that will automatically be a good first impression. And then vice versa, if they, you know, if they open your score and there's all sorts of collisions and notation errors and stuff, it doesn't matter how good your music is. It's not going to, you know, make a good impression on them if your score is super messy. Um, mm -hmm. So even getting a friend, like, look at it, I think, is, is you know, a really good way to do it. Like, I find that I'm so much better at proofreading other people's scores than my own scores because I've been staring at my own scores for, like, hours and hours. So <laughs> I don't really notice things that are out of place but someone like a fresh pair of eyes will. Um, so I think that's sort of my main advice. And then just like be yourself, which is kind of cheesy and like cliche advice. But um, I feel like, you know, when you go to your interviews or 
when people are looking at your music, like they're genuinely interested in your music and they want you to succeed and nobody's sort of like out to get you, I guess. Yeah. Do you, do you find that because of the way that things are presented on social media and how everything's really short and clipped down, do you, do you find that like you sometimes feel pressured to write things that are shorter and more concise or is kind of the com- the community of musicians and people who actually come to a concert is that does that feel like I guess sort of separated from what you have to do on social media yeah I think it I think it is separated especially because like I'm just so bad with social media in general that when I'm like I don't think I'm ever really thinking of social media when I'm writing a piece mm. but something kind of similar I guess to what you were asking that is it like a huge thing is that when I'm writing a piece of music, you have to think about whether it's like how it's going to get performed, um, which is kind of an unfortunate truth of like, if I want to write a piece for like two full orchestras and choir and ballet, like that's maybe not, I mean, that that would sound super cool and I would love to do that, but it's not the most feasible if I want to realistically get it performed. And so I think a lot of student composers, and I I think this is maybe actually like an issue that needs to be addressed, but is that we tend to gravitate towards writing a lot more solo or chamber music, just because that's the easiest stuff to get a good performance of. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it would be really great if there were more outlets for, um, for, you know, readings from larger ones, actually, and this is my other point is not just readings, but actually like well rehearsed professional performances of pieces for larger ensembles um I think that's something that's seriously lacking especially and you know I'm not I'm not here at Bash U of T I had a really great (laughs) experience there but especially at U of T you know there's a reason that all of the student composer concerts are filled with solo and chamber works and it's because you know it you can it's really hard to get a full orchestra on stage to to perform your orchestral work and then length does factor into it too in in that case because if you are writing an orchestral work and you're lucky enough to have an opportunity for it to get performed often an orchestra is more willing to say yes to rehearse like a two to five minute piece than anything longer than that Mm. yeah it's um it's funny because um all of the the larger ensembles that I know of that have performed student works are usually ensembles that the students have formed themselves. Like, I I know. And students do like, yeah, that's, that's how, um, for people listening who maybe don't know what we're referring to, I sing or used to sing in a choir called Concreambus and it's meant to exactly do that to perform um, student choral works and sometimes works by alumni as well. And yeah, that's why a lot of these groups are formed is that, you know, the the conductor Kai was was tired of having, you know, performances of choral works that were like maybe rehearsed once or twice by like a pickup group of of singers, you know, and performance usually didn't turn out to be, um, you know, representative or, or do justice to the amazing piece that was written by the composer. And so he made this group so that there could actually be, you know, well rehearsed, professionally presented performances wow that's a great alliteration um, <laughs> of student choral works and you know I know other people who have done similar things like Ricardo who who graduated um not this year but last year he started an orchestra um because for actually a slightly different purpose he needed um material for his conducting auditions and that meant that he needed 
you know, footage of him conducting an orchestra, which wasn't really something that he had any opportunities to do. So he made his own orchestra and with his friend Evan and Evan had the orchestra perform one of his pieces as well. So yeah, there's a lot of students who are sort of like creating these groups just out of the pure necessity for groups who will perform um, like larger ensembles who will perform student works. But it would be even even then, you know, the quality of like a bunch of students who aren't getting paid and who aren't getting a credit for showing up to rehearsals is never going to be as good as like an actual class or university endorsed ensemble. Um, so I think that that's something that is sort of lacking. And they, these ensembles do have reading sessions, but again, like their reading sessions, you know, UTSO will spend like 10, 15 minutes on a five minute piece and then try mm. and record it. And it's never going to be perfect. Definitely something that I think would be cool to have more collaboration between the different, the performance students and the composition students and collaboration and networking be more integrated into the program. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Because really, it's like nothing musical it really exists in a bubble. You know, if you're composing, yeah, totally. you need players. If you are playing music, you need a piece to play. Well, also, I think another thing that is like really great is when students are willing to perform new works. Because I know, mm -hmm. like, a lot of people, and you know, I can understand why are are kind of scared to do that. But composers love writing pieces for you know their friends and their colleagues and. Whenever I know that whenever I find like a good player who's willing to perform my work immediately, I'm like, oh, can I please write everything for you now? <laughs> and like, you know, who doesn't want to perform a piece that was written specifically for them? Like, that's so cool. And I feel like a lot of maybe a lot of performers don't even really realize that that's like a possibility. But yeah, performers make friends with your fellow composition students because they really want to write pieces for you. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, I find, um, I guess, especially with um, classical music, I feel like there's often that like perception of like, oh, you're a composer, you would probably write like 12 tone, atonal music, contemporary <laughs> music, but that's not the, like, there's so much variety throughout all of the, the composers that like I've met at U of T. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure you can agree. Yeah, totally. And I mean, like, you know what, even if it is like 12 tone, atonal, or like, you know, electronic music, like, what if, you know, what if you did jump into that? What if you did, you know, perform, learn that mm -hmm. work and perform it? And that could be a really cool and new experience. And, you know, and I think like performers too, like it's it's really cool, I think, and can help when um, you sort of like, I guess, are immersed in the um, context behind a certain piece of music. So if, a, if one of your friends hands you a 12-tone a piece to learn and perform, then you know, what if you went and, and looked up some works by, you know, the the second Viennese school, Schoenberg, Weber, and Berg, and, you know, I bet that you would find at least one piece from there, even if you don't like 12 tone music that you're interested in, and, and, you know, look at the scores, look at how their score is compared to the score that you were handed, and just, I think, sort of that, that process can really help make it feel less scary to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I was in um, last year... I did one of the, the reading sessions with Green Room, and we were playing um, a piece by Michael Sil Silvaggi, and it was, he's like very into yeah. noise music. As yeah, you know. he's, he's like a yeah. spectralist. <laughs> 
Yeah. And so I had never played anything like that. And looking at the score, there's all these quarter tones and I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know yeah. what this is going to sound like, but and it ended up being just like a really eye-opening experience to play a style that I'd never played before. And it went, I, at the end of that experience, I was just like, this is really cool. Yeah. And I, I hope that you told him that because I'm sure he would be oh, yeah. super thrilled to hear that. And composers are always really thrilled to, to hear that kind of thing. I feel like it would be interesting to play a piece within that style in a high school classroom or an elementary band. Yeah orchestra you know because it's like I, I I don't know I find sometimes students can get discouraged because they may not be at that point where they can like get the sound that they want or it's like they might still be struggling with certain elements but it's like it's supposed to be noise music and so then you don't necessarily have to have the perfect tone um and then you can yeah, kind of that's focus a really more cool, on shape that's a really yeah. cool concept I have never thought of that before that would be great and then also just like you know I think the reason so many university students are scared to touch like spectralism or 12 tone music is literally just because they haven't really seen it or heard it and oh, if yeah. we started exposing people to that kind of thing earlier then that wouldn't be a problem right if if you know people just like we learn about you know Beethoven and Mozart and Mendelssohn or whatever when we're growing up what if we also learned about Schoenberg and you know Fernie Ho and you know whoever else um and you don't have to like them, just like, you know, I'm not a big Mozart fan, but even just like knowing about them and learning about them, I think will help broaden people's horizons and hopefully be sort of less less scared of new music. And also like a lot of people don't know that you can perform uh, student composer work on your jury if you get permission to. So mm-hmm. that's a really cool way to sort of like have a really well-rehearsed performance of a student work because and then that way you get something out of it, right? At least you're getting graded for it. At least it's not just like, I mean, obviously it's never for nothing, but it feels like you have something to sort of work towards, you know? Yeah, and it's like, it's not um, an extra thing that you have to juggle in addition to your schoolwork. It's, mm-hmm. it's um, it sort of takes a load off. So you, you know, you, you can kill two birds with one stone, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's it's part of your jury, so it's not an extra thing. And then also because it's part of your jury, I feel like people are more likely to maybe like hold themselves accountable for making sure that they really get a, a good performance of it, which benefits the performer and it benefits the composer. So the win-win mm-hmm. for everybody. Do you have advice for um, composers who might not play an instrument? Because um, you mentioned that a lot of your networking is from being part of the ensembles that are playing your music. Mm-hmm. I think I, I know that at U of T, um, composers have to play an instrument. Like to to get into composition at U of T, I had to audition on voice as well. So I think that's like maybe less of an issue here in Canada, where um, most schools require even composition students to play an instrument or sing. Um, but I've learned recently that in the U.S., it's actually not like that, and you can get into composition for most schools without um, without studying an instrument or without having to audition on an instrument. And I find that really interesting because I think that being a singer and like having that piano background too is like such a big part of what I draw on to compose. And I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to like compose music without actually playing an instrument. So I think, I guess my advice would just be like, maybe you know start learning an instrument or 
try to sort of get involved with maybe like learning a bunch of instruments sort of at the beginner level to at least sort of just like understand how they work or mm. at, at the very least sort of like getting into even if it's not on a musical instrument performing somehow whether it's I don't know dancing or you know w- whatever else but I think just like being able to perform is such an important part of understanding how to compose good music and compose music that is performable and music that is going to come off the way that you want it to come off in performance. Do you ever conduct your own music? So conducting is definitely an area that I am less familiar and experienced with. Um, I know a lot of composers do conduct their own music and it's definitely something that I want to improve on. I took, um, I only took one conducting course at U of T, which I kind of regret. I wish I had taken two but composers are required to take at least one so mm-hmm. the first conducting course I ever took was actually this this year with um Professor Torrance and I learned so much from that course and I definitely want to keep sort of learning how to conduct and getting more comfortable conducting so yeah I, I do think it's definitely a, a huge benefit to be able to conduct because then if you know if you're having music performed with a larger ensemble and they need a conductor well then you can do it and you know your score and you know what you want um so I think that's that's a huge benefit and it's definitely something that I'm sort of looking to um get better at for sure I have two more questions so the first one is when you were beginning your composition journey sort of making that decision of like oh I want to do this as a career were there any resources or like pieces of advice that you found out later that it's like, oh, I, I would give this advice to someone who's starting out. Hmm. Yeah, actually, well, the biggest thing that I would say is that like you can take composition lessons, which is something that I didn't even think of when I was in high school, right? Like I, I took voice lessons, I sang in choirs, I took theory lessons, I took piano lessons, but I didn't even know that composition lessons were something that you could have. And I didn't, my first composition lessons were in university. Um, so that's definitely, I think the biggest thing that I would tell like a young aspiring composer is that there are composition teachers out there who you can get composition lessons from. So that's really cool. Yeah, and it's, it's nice to sort of view composition as something that you can learn and get better at, develop on, as opposed to something that's just sort of comes to you innately. If you want to do it, you can learn how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, that's a really good piece of, of advice. Um, and the last question is, um, what do you have any music recommendations to hmm. listeners? Music recommendations. I feel like whenever anyone asks me about like my favorite music or something, I just like forget every piece of music I've oh, ever seen. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it doesn't have up. to be your favorite. It could be it could be yeah. anything, even the first thing that comes okay. to your mind. Oh, actually, you know what? Okay. Um, I have a good one. So Kaya Seriejo, have you ever heard that name before? Yes. Okay, so she, she passed actually, away recently, right? Yeah, she passed away recently, which is a huge shame because she was an amazing composer. So I would say anything by her um is something that I would recommend to listen to. She has some great operas she has some great art songs actually um there's one art song set called Quatre Instants um and we I don't know if you remember but we studied it or we're reading mm. um 
10 or Kuzmenko's class in theory four? It was in Sans class. Okay, yeah. yeah. So we we studied it there and the whole um, set is amazing. Um, so yeah, I would recommend that for sure. Awesome. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bedroom Studios podcast. Don't forget to add this podcast to your playlist, like and follow, and also follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Spotify at Bedroom Studios Podcast. I will also be linking Emily's social media in the description. You should definitely check out her music. And don't forget to follow our playlist of our guest music recommendations. All of these will be linked in the description. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Bedroom Studios podcast. They will be released every other Thursday for season one. Hope to see you there.